Okay, so Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In the second reading, uh, Luke chapter 20, verses uh, 41, up until chapter 21, verse 4. So Jesus is continuing to talk to the religious uh, leaders here. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can meet together as your people, whether here in person at church uh, or whether at homes uh, through um, uh, technology. Uh, we thank you that, um, first and foremost, we are connected to each other, one another by, by Christ, uh, and for that we give you great thanks. We thank you that your word uh, teaches us your ways, your truths, uh, and we do continue to pray as we sit under your word again today, uh, that you would um, help us to hear uh, these strong words of warning that Jesus gives, uh, that we might be uh, very aware um, of what uh, bad and corrupt and destructive religion and leadership looks like, but also that we might see the light uh, at the end of this passage that shows us what true religion looks like, but most importantly, help us to see Jesus uh, in and through these passages, that he is the one who comes uh, to give us the, the hope and peace of true religion and true leadership. Uh, and this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it would uh, be fair to say that no one hates hypocrisy more than Jesus. I know many of us hate hypocrisy. It's one of the big uh, criticisms leveled against Christians, uh, and perhaps more often than not, it's true. Uh, but Jesus hates hypocrisy right, more than anybody, especially the hypocrisy of empty religion. 
right? Hypocrisy of religion, religious hypocrisy is the worst kind of hypocrisy, I think. Because true religion that is grounded in truth and sincerity, uh, it connects people to God and it connects God to people. That's what religion does, right? True religion uh, that is based in truth and sincerity connects people to God and God to people. But when you have hypocritical religion and false teachers, they, they promise so much, but then it's all pretense, it's all empty. Right? They hold out the hope of God and of life and of peace and of salvation, but what they end up doing is they end up taking, they end up robbing people of the opportunity to connect with God. And they not only lead themselves into death and destruction, they lead those who follow them into death and destruction and into hell. And so we see that throughout the gospel that Jesus hates hypocrisy, especially of the religious kind. And we see the New Testament authors, the Apostle Paul and, and Peter and, and John and James, all of them, they, they write in their letters uh, words of condemnation and of judgment against false teachers and their teaching. Very strong and very heavy words. Now, some of us, I know, are, are, are very uncomfortable right, hearing about preaching that calls out and condemns false teachers and, teaching, uh, and, and their teachings. Uh, and it's uncomfortable to read some sections of the, the Bible. We'd rather the preacher just focus on the positive, don't we? On the things that are inspiring, that are uplifting, that are heartwarming. Right? Why you know, deal with all these things? They're so yucky. I, I, I acknowledge it is an uncomfortable thing to have to hear. But let me tell you, there's also an uncomfortable thing to have to preach about, right? I mean, I don't enjoy preaching about false teachers and their teachings about calling out people and condemning. But the love of God is shown to us when His Son and His messengers and His teachers warn people of the dangers that are out there because of how destructive that they are. That there are prey, that there are predators out there that we do not want to fall prey to. So the best thing we can do is to really pray within ourselves for that uh, humility to hear hard words sometimes, right? And to be able to see that there are dangers out there and to pray that we might have hearts that will respond, especially if we ourselves are in danger, but also to pray for those who we know might be in danger of these kind of predators. Now, this section of Luke that we're looking at began, like I said, back in chapter 19, right, verse 41. 1941, there's the, the, the scene where Jesus is riding down from the Mount of Olives, heading into Jerusalem. Uh, and when he drew near the city, we're told that he wept, right? Uh, you know, a torrent of tears... Uh, it's a strong word, a heaving sobs. He's filled with great grief and even, I would say, great anger as he looks upon the city of Jerusalem. You remember, Jesus is, is coming down on a cult in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the, the Christ, the King. But he comes in humility. He comes into the city to bring life and to bring peace. Remember, he's the King of Peace riding into Jerusalem, which literally means the city of peace but he knows that he's about to enter a city who will reject him and will reject the, pre uh, the peace that he brings. And right at the center of Jerusalem is the temple. And we see uh, in these few chapters that the temple is broken. And why is it broken? It is broken because of the corrupt religion and the corrupt leaders uh, of the temple. The temple was meant to be the center of religious life, the connection point between God and man. But the Jewish leaders had destroyed the temple and destroyed peace. 
Now, in this section, we will see a continuation of what Jesus has been doing since he came into Jerusalem. He entered the temple, he, he turned over tables, uh, he went on um, uh, and, and he, 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 he cleansed it, but then he was attacked, wasn't he? As we saw in our passage last week. Um, and in this passage, he goes on the counterattack. Right? He's, he's been taking the traps that have been set by, by the leaders, trying to trap Jesus into um, maybe getting the people offside with his answers or getting the Roman uh, rulers to, to go against him in case he says words that are against the, uh, the, the, the government. But here we see Jesus turn the tables. And, and in his interaction, in his attack of these leaders, we see what's so wrong about Israel, what's so wrong about their leaders, what's so wrong about the religion that they were peddling. We see why Jesus was so grieved. And we'll get a chance to see what bad religion and what bad leadership looks like. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to be left not just with all this kind of darkness and yuckiness, but we're not left with a, a relief, a, a, a ray of light, as we see this interaction end with a beautiful picture of this poor widow and what she does. We'll get to see what true religion looks like, but even better still, we'll get to see what the true leader looks like. So let's begin at verse tw- uh, 41, uh, chapter 20, verse 41. So uh, Dr. Regin, uh, Wes spoke about this riddle a bit last week, but I want to spend a little bit more time on it this week. Uh, because uh, this is a bit of a bridging passage, right? It's part of the counterattack, isn't it? Beforehand, it was the scribes and the leaders who were bringing riddles and tricks against Jesus, but now begins Jesus' counterattack. And it's not very easy to understand, so I want to expand on it a little bit more from what uh, Wes talked about last week. So let's begin, right? Verse 41, Jesus said to the scribes, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now let's consider the, the background to this before we fully understand what this riddle is about, right? The background. So, it's been established in Luke's gospel that Jesus is a descendant, a son of David. Uh, We've seen this right from the beginning, where we know that he is from the line of David, right? uh, David was one of his ancestors. He's born in the city of David, in the line of David. Uh, And even uh, later on in his life, in chapter 18, a blind man, right, who hasn't got physical sight, has the spiritual insight to see and call out to Jesus as the son of David, and he calls out for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. But the question is, what kind of son of David is Jesus? Is he just a, a regular you know, son of David, just one of many human sons, descendants, uh, just another man? Uh, who is Jesus really, right? Now, for the religious leaders, uh, it's clear to, to them uh, and to us that they regard Jesus as just a man, a regular man. In fact, they probably value him as less than a man because they want to kill him, right? They don't think he should deserve to live on this earth. They hate him, and they want him dead. And it's in this context that Jesus asked this riddle about the, the son of David, right? How can the Christ be David's son? Now, the question then is, why is this a riddle? I spent a long time in the last few weeks trying to think, well, what kind of riddle is this? And what, is, what is the riddle in this question? So let me break it down. Now, all the Jewish people knew that the Christ, right, which is this uh, prophet, pro- prophesied Messiah, uh, God's eternal king and savior, whom we would send, will come from the line of David. Uh, he will be one of David's descendants. That was the great hope for the Jews. The scribes, who literally, their job was to write down and make copies of the Old Testament. Right? No printing press, no photocopiers. So the scribes' entire life's purpose was to write down scriptures and make copies of it, right? to be able to pass on to others to read, and they would teach it as well. So, these scribes knew better than most, in fact, probably everybody, about the, new, the Old Testament teaching about the Christ. And in fact, Jesus quotes from them a psalm that, they, that was very, very uh, familiar to them, that they would have memorized, 
not just the scribes, but the people of the Jewish people, the most quoted psalm of the Old Testament, Psalm 110, uh, is a psalm that speaks of the Lord God of heaven and earth giving to the Christ the role of king and judge, the role of being this eternal priest, mediator between God and man. And this psalm was written by David. If you go to Psalm 110, a psalm by David, and David calls this descendant of his Lord. And that's the riddle, because fathers don't call their children or their great-great-great-grandchildren Lord. In those times, it's the children that call the father Lord, right? So how can David call one of his sons Lord? You don't do that if he is just a normal regular human son. So the question then is, right, the riddle is, is this son of David, is Jesus just a normal, regular human son? That's the riddle. What will these leaders answer? Now, right from the beginning of Luke's gospel, before Jesus' birth, even in his conception, we, we know, right, the angels appeared to Mary and said, this child that is being uh, formed in your tummy is the Christ, God's prophesied, prophesied Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, who will ascend the throne of his father David, who will rule, right? The Psalm 110, Christ. And then when Jesus is born, angels appear to shepherds by night. And it was told to go to the city of David where you will see Christ. The baby is born. And then throughout Jesus' life and ministry, we see Jesus' powerful word and his miraculous works, testifying that he is not ordinary human son, no ordinary man, but that he is the divine son of God, the Christ. Now the question then is, should not these scribes, these religious leaders of the Jews, have seen and understood the word of God and the evidence of Jesus' life to put the things together and say, that's the reason why David calls Jesus Lord, because he is the Christ. But we're not told, right? Jesus doesn't say anymore. He poses the riddle and he leaves it at that. He doesn't say anymore. He leaves it hanging, in fact, until the end of chapter 22, when during his trial, he admits it, right? That I am the Christ, plain and simple. But at this point, he says nothing. And we're not told how the religious leaders respond. Uh, but we do know for sure, isn't it, that they don't respond well. So we can assume the answer. They won't answer the riddle because the answer is clear. They don't see Jesus as any more than just a man. In fact, they see him as less than one because they want to get rid of him. Now, this, this, this is a, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? They're the, the scribes. They're the ones who have written out the Old Testament many times, including all of the prophecies about the Christ. And they, as religious leaders, have heard and seen the things that Jesus has been teaching and doing in Jerusalem and throughout Galilee, the regions around them. They've either heard it, second, third-hand information, or they've seen it for themselves. And yet when this Christ came, the one that they had supposedly been waiting for, for many generations, they rejected. They refused to see. They didn't follow through on their teaching. What a tragedy, right? A travesty, right? All this, all this time learning God's Word, all this time writing it out, all this time teaching it to others, all this time being also religious, yet they were ignorant and they were arrogant. You see, tr true religion, as we, as we see through, through all these, these passages, this connection to God, life that God wants us to have, peace and salvation, can only be found in seeing Jesus as the Lord God's Christ, as our Lord, our King, 
and our Savior. Any religion that doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord won't lead you to God. Any religion that doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord won't save you from judgment. We've seen, isn't it, the whole way through the Gospel of Luke, that the Lord God has only raised one Lord. There is only one King, one Savior. There's only one set of feet in whom the, everything, all things, are placed under, in which He will rule. There's only one ruler and one Savior, only one mediator between man and God. It's not enough just to say that Jesus is a good man. A lot of people like Jesus. He's a good guy, right? It's not enough to say that he's a teacher or a prophet or a spiritual guru or even one divine savior out of a whole host of many options of being saved. You see, the word of God and the evidence of history points us to this truth. That there is only one Lord and he is Jesus the Christ. Now, the warning here is for us to make sure that we, not, we do not fail to follow through and arrive at the necessary conclusions from what the Word of God has revealed to us and what the evidence of history has shown us, that we not fail to arrive at the necessary conclusions. Because that's what we see the leaders of Israel doing. Right? They had all of the Word of God, they had all the necessary evidence, but they failed to arrive at the right conclusion, which is to see Jesus as the only Lord to trust Him and submit to Him. Now, we must be careful and discerning that even today, there are many who claim to know the Word of God and who teach the Word of God, who are actually going against the clear Word of God and the evidence of what God's Word says. I think sometimes the danger is the greatest within the Christian circles almost, right? We know that there are other religions that do not regard Jesus at all, but within the Christian circles, there are dangerous elements, right, where, where Christian leaders, uh, so-called leaders, they offer up right, alternative ways of salvation, right, other ways to connect with God. Uh, on one end of their spectrum, we've got uh, kind of holiness movements with their very strict obedience, legalistic rule following and religious observances as the way to get right with God. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got these kind of mystical spiritualities, you know, that they promise, you know, transcendence and connection with God through all kinds of uh, 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 mysterious means, uh, emotional and spiritual connections. And they all, when you think about them and when you experience them, can, can all seem very religious and very spiritual and very God, full of God. But what you'll notice is that they'll often deny, at least to some degree, uh, a whole devotion to God and His Word about Jesus. Uh, they'll refuse to see the Lord Jesus Christ as the, 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 the only mediator, the only way to connect with God, and the only definition for what it means to, be, to have life and to have peace and to have spirituality. Uh, they will sideline Jesus uh, in the way that they practice and teach. You see, the Jewish leaders were like that, right? They didn't follow through on the Word of God. And there are many leaders like that today as well. They'll, they'll teach things that don't, that even the, the Word of God right, completely speaks against. I'll give you one example. It's a risky example to give, but let me say it very clearly. Speaking tongues, right? Everyone kind of knows about that in Christian circles, speaking tongues. Did you know that the Word of God is very clear? 1 Corinthians 14, if they were to be speaking in tongues in a church, there would be to be at most two or three, 
and only if there is an interpreter of that tongue so that it can be understood by everybody in plain language. 1 Corinthians, go 14, go read it. I've gone to many charismatic churches in my younger days, and never once have I seen only two or three speak, and never once have I seen an interpreter interpreting the tongues. Now, that is a clear teaching from the Word of God by the Apostle Paul, and I asked that of my, my mature charismatic friends, and I asked them, what's the deal with the Word of God and obedience, right? Why does your, you know, practice supersede or reject the clear teaching of the Word of God? Now, I'll give that as one example, uh, and it may be a bit controversial, but that's what the Word says, right? And, and you can repeat that many other ways, where, where in the name of Christianity, people teach and practice things that goes against the Word of God, Let's make sure we don't make the same mistake. Make sure we're discerning of the false teachings that are out there. Let's make sure we ourselves are not teaching and practicing uh, things that go against the clear word of God right, and the evidence uh, of his works and word in history. Now the question then is, right, why were they like that? Right, why were these uh, scribes, these religious leaders, why, why is it that all their religious devotion kind of led them nowhere good? Why did it lead them not to God when they were so clearly devout? All right, in many ways. Well, Jesus spells it out very clearly and cuttingly uh, in verse 45 to 47. He calls out, right, beware of the scribes, Jesus says, because uh, they were people who basically were in it for themselves. That's basically what Jesus says, isn't it? And they loved wearing their long, showy religious robes, uh, religious peacocking. You know, look at me. I'm the important guy here, right? I'm the guy with all the religious stuff to give. Right, we all wear normal clothes, but then they wear their religious garb. Right, these people, they walk around in public places and they want to be seen. Right, they love to be greeted. Uh, they love to have their hands shaked. People bow to them. It reminds me of the Korean shows that I watch, all the tables, you know. Everybody has to bow to them you know, when they walk past and greet them. Right? It's all so pretentious, but they love it. Right? They love the best spots right, in the ceremonies and in the feasts. They love the honor and the recognition and the adulation and the applause. They basically want to be treated like VIPs, right? They want to walk down the red carpet. They got a photographer, you know, taking photos from every angle, capturing their mom uh, every moment, be ushered to the VIP seats, people taking selfies or wefies so you can post on social media. Okay, I'm modernizing this, all right? Um, but basically, that's, that's what they're out, they're out for, isn't it? They're treated like royalty, like, like celebrities. You see, their religion wasn't about God. Right? Their religion was about themselves. It wasn't to, to bring praise to God. It was to gain praise for themselves. And if this was all that it was, that would be bad enough, but it gets worse, doesn't it? It gets worse. Not only did they try to gain for themselves man's praise, they were ripping off um, people who were vulnerable. They were ripping off even the most vulnerable in their care, like the widows, right? Jesus speaks and, and, and condemns them for devouring widows' houses, right? We're not told exactly what this is, but you can kind of uh, figure out, right, that they were cheating uh, widows uh, of their homes. Now, how were they doing this? There's a lot of theories. You can go read about it if you want. But what he says next may give us a hint for how they were doing this. Uh, we are told that they would pray these long, kind of flowery prayers. So perhaps... They were ripping off widows' homes by offering, you know, their religious, flowery, also holy prayers for money, perhaps to bless the home or to cast out uh, evil spirits or who knows what they were doing. But whatever it is that they were doing, they were putting on a big show 
and they were fooling and ripping off even the most vulnerable that they were supposed to care for. Now, I, ho I hope that you, you're an emotional person and this causes your blood to boil a bit, right? Because this kind of religious hypocrisy is disgusting. The people you're meant to trust to lead you to God and the things of God are actually taking these things away. It's, it's wicked and it's wrong. It's the kind of religion that Jesus hates. It's right for us to hate hypocrisy. Jesus hates it even more. Because the very ones who are meant to lead people to God will lead them not only away from God, but into destruction now and for eternity. And so Jesus' verdict comes down hard in verse 47. They will receive the greater condemnation. Right? And all, all who turn away from God and all who reject and rebel against the Christ, yes, they will be condemned, but these leaders who should have known better, who are given the responsibility and the privilege, greater condemnation. And perhaps if this was in the court of God and there will be the gallery, the, the, the gallery cheers. Those who stand for God and for righteousness and for peace and for life ought to respond with a, with a level, um, maybe even like a godly fist pump. Not, not because we are gleeful and, 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 and we, are, we, are, you know, we love and enjoy the downfall of others, but because false teachers do such great damage. They do such great damage. We, we ought to feel a great sense of relief and even a, a godly sense of joy when they're stopped, right? When, when they don't destroy other people, when, when, when they are called out and, and, and shown to be who they really are and when they get the, 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 the righteous judgment that they deserve. Jesus warns us against false teachers like this. It's right for us to feel a, a level of holy disgust at this kind of uh, so-called religious leaders and their religion. Yeah, the damage is crazy, isn't it? They promise God, they preach religion, but it's all for personal gain. It's all a show, it's all a sham, all smokes and mirrors. They never lead you to God through the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I think for, for the most part, I think it's easy to spot today's version of this kind of false teachers and false religion. But it gets more subtle, and so we need a sermon. But the easy one's the spot, isn't it? Uh, religious men and women, you know, who live lives of fame and fortune. They fly around in jets and, and drive around in expensive cars, uh, living in luxury. Uh, you can go and search on Instagram if you want. Preachers uh, in sneakers, I think it's called. Uh, and someone takes a photo of, you know, these kind of preachers and teachers uh, who are all show, I think. And then they break down the cost of their Gucci belt and their whatever shoes and... You know, they, they have a certain kind of lifestyle, isn't it? They sell their wares, their, their trinkets, their charms, their books, their seminars. Pastors and teachers and leaders who seem to, to always be putting on a show. Their life seems to just be a series of polished performances um, for people to see. There's this, this emphasis on the externals. Their, their hair is never out of place. I was a little bit worried this morning when I put product in my hair and I thought, oh, maybe I'm like that, right? <laughs> okay, so I thought about which shirt to wear. You know, I've got about four short sleeve shirts that I cycle through. And I think, oh, maybe, you know, it's all for show. And it made me worried, right? But, but for these people, it's clear. That's what they are. They're, they're all about their brand, their image, their fashion, their rhetoric, their following. Their ministries are marked by money and merchandise. There's always seemingly something to sell and buy when it comes to these kind of teachers. But of course, it gets more subtle than that. And so a great question, I think, for us to ask is, 
of, of leaders and ministries is who gains? Who gains from this leader's ministry? Right? Who gains from this leader's ministry? You see, God's ministers lead God's people to gain Christ. Right? God's approved ministers lead people to gain Christ. To, to know Christ more deeply, to trust Him, to obey Him, and to love Him, and to appreciate Christ more. The godly leader is the one who tries as much as possible to fade further and further into the background, right? so that Christ may be the one that's glorified and honored. It's a real strange uh, two years. I'm now someone people watch on TV, right? Kids say, I see you on TV, right, the first time they meet me. I, I never wanted to be that kind of out there, uh, recognized person. And in, 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 I, I'm not sure how to prevent people from making more of me. But within myself, that's my desire and my, 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 my necessity as a leader is to decrease. As John the Baptist says, right? Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what gospel ministers ought to do. And so if you come across ministers who make it about them and who promote themselves and they are increasing, then beware, Jesus says. Beware the, the leader who does religion for self-gain. Because not only will they receive the greater condemnation, if you follow them, you will go down with them. So don't be sucked in. Right? Avoid them. And if, if needed, if you're wise enough and if you have the opportunity to, call them out. Warn other people. Prevent them from being sucked in. And always keep praying. Right? Keep praying for them, for their repentance. And keep praying for those who are being led astray by them. All right, pretty heavy stuff, isn't it, so far? Pretty heavy stuff. It's not easy to hear, not very heartwarming, not very inspiring, maybe. But let me tell you, it's not very easy to preach either. Right? I made sure I took my uh, anti-reflux medication this morning. Right? Because preaching sermons like this makes me quite fired up, and I get pains. Um, and so I made sure to take my medicine, because this stuff isn't easy to preach on. Thankfully, though, it's not all bad news. Thankfully, this conversation in this setting right, finishes with a beautiful picture, I think, of a huge contrast, a wonderful counterexample. Because we've seen so far, in the last couple of chapters, perhaps even longer than that, the kind of religion that Jesus hates. Now, in the first four verses of chapter 21, we get a chance to see the kind of religion that Jesus loves. Huge contrast, the kind of religion that Jesus loves. <clears throat> All right, so having finished lambasting right, the religious leaders in the temple, Jesus looks up at the temple. Still, he's still there, right? And he sees people offering their free will offerings to God in the temple. He sees a, a group of rich people coming out, giving out of their riches. And then he sees a widow. And we find out very soon that she's very, very poor. And, and she comes and she puts in, we're told, two small copper coins. I think that's what the ESV says. Uh, literally, it means two mites. Okay, how much is a mite? You might be wondering, right? How much is this worth? Uh, so basically, the short answer is very little. Okay? So uh, for those of you who are very good at mental maths, uh, follow along. Okay, follow along. Let me tell you, describe how much a mite is worth. Uh, one denarii is one day's uh, wage, right? Average wage for a worker. So there's one denarii. Uh, one denarii is worth six mirrors. Got that? Uh, one mere is worth two pondions. One pondion is worth two iserins. One iserin is worth eight mites. And so, 
what is the percentage of a day's wage is a mite? I'm just kidding. Okay, well, I'll ask you. But basically, if I did the sums for you, it's basically 1%. It's 1% of a day's wage. And for the regular Australian age one, a wage uh, earner who earns about 80000 a year, it's basically about $2, $2.50 worth of money right? for an average Australian. Very little. It's not even half a bubble tea. Right? Anyone find a bubble tea for $5? None. $5.50, $6. It's not even worth half a bubble tea. You might be able to buy the bubbles. No, actually, the bubbles is the expensive part. You might be able to buy the tea. That's about it. But Jesus says in chapter 21, verse 3, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, the rich people. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put all she had to live on. Now, for the first time since entering Jerusalem, Jesus says something positive. Now, I like to imagine kind of the scene. Uh, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a TV show, movie kind of watcher. So I like to imagine when it comes to narratives, there's a scene. And, and I think for the first time, maybe Jesus has a smile on his face. He's been there in the temple for a few days now, teaching. And for the first time, maybe there's a smile on his face. There, there's warmth in his heart as he looks upon this poor widow giving her all and commends her because he's seen that she's put in more than the rich because she's given all that she's had to live on. Now, it could be her entire life savings or it could just be what she needed to live on for that day, right? Her, uh, the day's amount of money to buy not bubble tea but maybe the basic wheat and grain that she needed to survive. Whatever it was, Jesus emphasized the word all, more than all of them. All of them contributed a bit out of their abundance, but she gave her all. Now, I suppose Jesus could be taking a swipe at the rich or taking a swipe at the religious leaders in the previous passage. But I think that the emphasis here is really about the widow and what she does, the positive aspect, right? It reads more to me about someone who is doing religion truly. And what is that? Someone who is all in for God in the temple. As opposed to the previous passages, which is some people in the temple who are all out, all against God and His Christ. All in for God in the temple, all out, all against God in the temple, against the Christ. That's the contrast. Her religion was one of wholehearted devotion to God. Theirs was of empty devotion to God, rejecting God's Christ and doing religion for gain. This widow is a huge breath of fresh air. If you were getting a bit riled up, right, with all the false teaching and the damage that they did, this is meant to relieve us. The breath of fresh air, the uh, array of much-needed light and sunshine amongst all this yuckiness and darkness of rejection and rebellion that we've been seeing over the last few weeks. All right, let me draw some uh, conclusions and implications to finish. Now, I've said a lot about this first implication point already, about being uh, aware or bewaring of false teachers and their religion. But let me just repeat and summarize it one more time. Uh, false teachers and false religions promote a certain leadership and religion uh, that is destructive, and we need to know how to spot them. Uh, two ways. One is to see what they don't do, right? What they don't do. And what they don't do is they don't point you to Jesus. They, they claim to be the people of the word, but they don't arrive at the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't 
always and pointedly and with great joy center it all on Jesus. In their teaching, it doesn't lead you to understand Christ more. It doesn't grow your understanding of Him. In their teaching, in their preaching, in their leading, it doesn't make you grow in faith and trust in Jesus and obedience and love for Jesus and a joy and a life in Jesus. It, it doesn't uh, uh, um, transform you to become more like Christ and transform your service towards Jesus and His kingdom. Right? They won't do that. They'll make it about something else, something religious, something spiritual, but it'll be very much... Christ not at the center. But what they will do instead is do religion for gain. What they will do is to make it about them, recognition, praise, rewards from men. This is the kind of religion and leadership that Jesus hates. So beware, avoid, call out if you need to warn, and always pray. Always pray. Second implication on the flip side, we get to see the kind of religion and leadership that Jesus loves. And it's very simple. The religion that Jesus loves is all in for Jesus. Right? All in for Jesus is not that complicated. All in for Jesus. And all in means recognizing and responding to Jesus as the Lord, as the Christ, our King, our Savior. Right? The only one whom we will worship and live for. <clears throat> in last week's sermon... Uh, Dr. Regin uh, did give us a, a long opportunity at the end uh, to reflect on different aspects of our lives that, that we would think through uh, to determine whether we are all in for Jesus, right? And I would commend you <clears throat> to go back and look at last week's sermon or, or to continue thinking through those questions. Uh, last week, we saw the issue of money come up in terms of taxes. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, it comes up again this week with the offerings. Uh, but life isn't all just about money, is it? There's all aspects of our abundance, so the question is, do we out of our abundance give just a little bit, whether it's money, time, energy, whatever it is, or do we out of our abundance give Jesus everything? And what does it look like? What, is the, what does it mean to give only a part of our lives to Jesus? And what does it really mean to give a whole of our lives to Jesus? That's a very important question uh, for you to answer. It's not the same answer for all of us. Because God has made us all differently, given us all different uh, uh, stations in life, different gifts, different abilities, different opportunities. And so we have to really prayerfully and do the hard work of thinking how that looks like. The question that I want to delve on, I want to, uh, to, to deal with a little bit more, which is the question behind the question, I guess the hard issue is, I wonder why is it that for many of us, perhaps even most of us, the idea of Jesus ruling over us completely is something that doesn't sound very appealing. Right? Uh, maybe not all the time, but maybe in, in, in moments or perhaps very many moments in our day or week or a month, the idea of Jesus ruling my life completely is not that appealing. You agree that that's how you feel sometimes? Why is it that the idea of, of giving uh, all to Jesus means that we will miss out and lose out in life. Have you ever felt that way? The idea of giving everything to Jesus, it doesn't fill us with joy and satisfaction and meaning. It makes us feel like we're going to miss out and we're going to lose out. You see, we, we, we struggle with this thing called unbelief, isn't it? And, and, and sin. And, and it stains us so much that we, we doubt uh, the goodness of God. Right, that we, we don't see the value of Jesus as our Lord 
the value of the kind of life that he came to save us to live for. And so we want to lead to the last point I want to make is for us to be able to see Jesus properly. Because unless we see Jesus properly, we won't want to live all in for Jesus, will we? You see, as Jesus sends down the verdict against corrupt religion and worthless leadership, let us look deeply at the person who is giving the verdict. Uh, he's the opposite, isn't he, of the failed religion of Israel and the failed leadership of Israel's leaders. He condemns it, he gets rid of it, he replaces it, and he fulfills it. Now, Jesus is, the, is the, the true religion, isn't he? He's the one that restores what religion is meant to do, which is to connect us to God and God to us. He's the one who gives life and peace. He's the one who uh, gets rid of that rubbish leadership, and he himself is the true leader without a hint, any hint of hypocrisy. He's no fake. He's the real deal. He's genuine. He's not here to seek his gain. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for money, for, for our gain. He came to gain the glory of God, for God to be praised. He didn't come to be about him, even though he, he could have made it all about him. He is the Christ. He came to, to give us the gain of a safe life, the gain of God's glory, His Father in heaven. You see, standing above all the yuckiness and the, the, the darkness, the deathness of, of, of yucky religion and religious hypocrisy and corrupt leadership, right, uh, standing uh, in contrast right, to, the, to these religious leaders um, is Jesus. He's the one who is the, the breath of life. He's the one who shines the brightest light of hope, of life and peace. He is Christ, the Christ of God, our Lord, our leader. It is what uh, will help us to be motivated to live for Jesus, isn't it? This ought to give us a great relief that behind all this yucky stuff is the, the most beautiful person, the one whom uh, has come to save us so that we can live all in for him. Let me pray that we would see the light of Jesus behind all of this darkness and, and brokenness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And even in parts of the word which is heavy, where Jesus is calling out and condemning and bringing down judgment on hypocrisy and, and wickedness and sinfulness. And yet we, we pray that you'll help us see that this is your love for us that part of uh, you showing your love for us, part of you giving us life, part of, us, part of you making us whole again is to be able to see what is out there that's going to damage us. Uh, the false religion, the false teachers that would lead us to not come to know the Lord Jesus as he truly is. False teachers and leaders who will lead us astray into death and destruction. And so we pray, Father, that you help us have that knowledge and that wisdom and discernment to be able to spot these things in our lives. Uh, for, the, for the influences that we, we allow into our lives. And we pray, too, that you'll help us to, to not go down these paths ourselves, to not religion be Christless, uh, nor be about ourselves. And instead, help us to see uh, that Jesus really is our Lord, our King, the only one to whom we must submit to and obey, the one who gives us life and joy and peace and all good things. We thank you for the beautiful picture of the poor widow who, who gave her all. Help us also to keep thinking 
and working hard to be all in for Jesus. To not do this grudgingly or with doubts, but to do it with joy because we know who Jesus really is. Thank you so much for Jesus, we pray in his name.